Uh, let's have God's Word open us up to Philippians chapter 1, and we will be looking at verse 1 through 11. And if you're able to, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Now this is the Word of the Lord, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Please be seated and, and join me in prayer once more. Father God, we ask indeed that you would teach us, Lord, and that you would draw near to us that we would not only know more about you, but we would deepen in our relationship and our understanding of who you are, Lord. Have your way in us. Search us out, Lord, and lead us to the way that is everlasting. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. As we go into the book of Philippians, I want to just give a backdrop. If we look in Acts chapter 16, it tells us that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were on the road trying to figure out where their next location to do missions work or to preach the gospel would be. Uh, in various different routes they've tried and they felt that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus uh, kept them from going there, that it wasn't the place that God wanted them to go. And perhaps on one evening, uh, as they were waiting and wondering what they're supposed to do, uh, a vision came. We're told that the Apostle Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia urging him. And this man says to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. If you remember, or the next time you are at our church building, we have a huge world map. Uh, and, and on that world map, we have plotted all the missionaries that are out there. And it quotes this text here in short, and it says, come over and help us. And so as Paul receives this vision, the three men agree that this, in fact, was a, a calling from God uh, for them to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel there. So they spend the next few days traveling on boat and on foot to get to Philippi, uh, which at that time was the leading city in Macedonia in a Roman colony. Once they arrive there, they go um, to the place of prayer, uh, the teaching of God's a word or the study of it. And there they meet a woman named Lydia. We're told that Lydia is a seller of uh, purple goods and a worshiper of God. We're also told that the Lord opened her heart 
in such a way that she responded to the good news of Jesus through Paul and his brothers who are preaching it there. And so she comes to accept Jesus as her Lord. And not only uh, through um, not only does she get baptized, but through her, the rest of her household gets baptized and receives Christ. And so an amazing thing about uh, the church of Philippi is that this church started with the conversion of this woman, um, Lydia, and then also through her household. So after this moment, uh, Paul and his brothers continue to preach the gospel uh, for days and build the church. And then we're told as Acts continues that uh, while Paul and his brothers are out there teaching and preaching once more that a demon-possessed slave girl uh, who was being used by her masters to make money by way of fortune-telling comes up to them. And and, and this demon-possessed girl cries out following them day after day after day, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she's just saying this and crying it out day after day after day. And, and on a side, what's interesting here is that uh, the demons may lack belief, but they still know the gospel and they testify it uh, in their own way. Uh, but in fact, we're told that uh, as, this, as this girl is following Paul and, and, and this group, that Paul gets so annoyed that he turns to the Spirit and commands the Spirit to leave this girl. And he says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And once the Spirit leaves, uh, the, the masters of this slave girl get upset because now they can't use her to do fortune telling and make money. So as as these masters are upset, they falsely accuse Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace. And basically Paul and Silas, they end up getting beat with rods, we're told. They get beaten with rods and they get dragged to jail. And in jail, they're, they're bound by their ankles with shackles. You know, they were beaten they were dragged. They were thrown in jail. And what do they do? Well, they sure don't feel sorry for themselves. They don't wonder why God gave them a vision to come here only to get beaten and thrown in jail. We're told in Acts 16.25 that around midnight, Paul and Silas, they come together and they pray. And they sing hymns to God. Of all things to do after getting beaten and thrown in jail and shackled. They pray and they sing hymns. And we're told the whole prison is listening to them. And then out of nowhere, an earthquake happens. The foundations of the prison shake. All the prison doors open up and the shackles become undone. And then the head guard who's in charge of keeping these prisoners there, he comes and, and, and thinking to himself that all the prisoners has now escaped, he draws his sword and he gets ready, ready to take his own life. And Paul says, stop, do not take your own life. All the prisoners are still here. And the head guard falls to his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so we see another convert, this jailer and his household coming to the Lord. So perhaps... As Paul, right now, is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, perhaps these are some of the memories he is replaying in his mind as he finds himself shackled once more for the gospel.
Perhaps as he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, he's remembering Lydia and her family. Perhaps he's remembering his time in jail and how the guard and his whole family came to Christ. Perhaps he's recalling all the people whom he has built relationships with and all the fellowship they had together doing gospel work. He writes this letter to all the saints, we're told. All the saints in Christ Jesus. It's not just the leaders of the church, the overseers or the deacons. It's not just the movers and shakers. It's not the special ones or the people who stick out or seem useful or or have been here a long time. He writes it and he addresses this letter to all the saints. He has all these brothers and sisters on his heart and in his mind. You know, on on the last gathering of our college ministry that I was a part of, uh, the seniors um, are given a time to share before they graduate. Just any last words we may have before we part ways uh, to our other brothers and sisters in the college ministry. I remember at that time I had so much to say. I had so many memories. I had so many stories. I had so, so many things I wanted to encourage and challenge and speak into. And at that time, I didn't know how to quite do all that. And so when it was my turn and I got up there and I got the mic, I opened up my Bible and I, and I just read Philippians 1 verses 3 through 11. I know. I was that dude. I was that dude. And not much has changed. I don't feel like I have too much to add to Paul's words here, but I'd like to draw our attention to a few things. As we consider uh, this section, I want us to see that first, Paul seems to be very thankful for the past. Second, he is hopeful for the future. And finally, our concluding point will be that this is because he is so confident in Christ. So thankful for the past. As, as Paul is in his jail cell, he, he's remembering. He's remembering all the things and, that he has encountered and the situations that has happened. And in verse 3 to 4, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This remembrance, as, as Paul reflects from his is his cell, he recalls, again, specific people, events, but ultimately God's sovereign orchestration of bringing uh, him together with these people. Paul calls to mind his partnership, his fellowshipping. Some of you may be familiar with the Greek term koinonia. Right? This term is, is, is used not simply as a partnership or a relationship, but a, a Christian fellowshipping. Paul seems to have this type of fellowship, this long, enduring relationship with these people from the beginning of his church plant and even now as he's in jail receiving help from them. This fellowship and partnership is is one that is made in the work of the gospel. They didn't simply have good meals together or, or build or start a church together or have a few good laughs. These were all things that resulted through their partnership as they co-labored for the sake of the gospel to go forth. The shared interest that was outside of their own self-interest was the very thing that brought and forged this fellowship together. And as Paul remembers and he thinks back on this, he is thankful. As he looks at the past, he's thankful. He's deeply grateful. It's this fellowship bond that gives Paul a joy, even in tough times. This 
remembrance radiates rays of joy that that lead to thankfulness and ultimately a, a joyful thanksgiving to God. Through his jail cell, although his jail cell must be dark and gloomy, through the windows of his remembrance, the faithfulness of God shines through with colors and vivid memories that bring joy and thankfulness and leads him to a sincere prayer. You know, a fellow preacher, uh, Kent Hughes, he actually was a guest preacher for us some time ago. Uh, He writes this, he says, that Paul rarely thanked God for things. Paul thanked God for people. Paul rarely thanked God for things. Paul thanked God for people. And then he goes on to point out that even at the conclusion of the book of Romans, Paul mentions 33 different names. And even in Philippians, we see that this letter is filled with names and people. When, when Paul thinks back, he doesn't simply remember events or ups and downs. He remembers people and the partnership and the fellowship that God has developed and groomed between them. And this fellowship, this remembering of this this deep, intimate relationship gives Paul joy. And in verse 4, Paul says, Every time I think about you guys and remember you guys, I get filled with joy and, and I thank God for it. Here, joy is mentioned for the first time at, like, like a thematic introduction to a symphony. We will hear it 15 more times in different harmonies, and it will find its crescendo in chapter 4 when Paul says, Rejoice! Again, I say rejoice! But colored through the darkness of Philippians is this overarching sense of joy that one has as he remembers God's faithfulness through the koinonia, through the fellowship with one another. So we see that through Paul's writing, joy is not simply an emotion or a feeling. It's not simply a a, a mood. But actually, joy is better understood as an attitude. This is why, think about it, this is why joy can be commanded in God's word. It, It can be commanded with an encouraging and hopeful voice to say, rejoice, Consider it joy. Rejoice and find joy. See, you, you can't command emotions. You can't, someone, you can't tell someone just to simply be happy. You can't command someone to be sad. But you can command joy. Because joy isn't just a, a feeling or an emotion. It's an attitude. It's a framework and state of thanksgivingness, thanksgiving and thankfulness. So, so how can we apply this portion... Uh, You know, as you're in quarantine, as you're isolated, perhaps looking out into the windows of your memories of what once was, what are the things you're recalling? Do you simply miss eating out, meeting with your friends or dressing up? Or do you miss the fellowship and the partnership that was forged through living life and struggling together through maybe even mundane and regular, seemingly ordinary experiences? Remember your fellows in Christ. Reflect upon how God has brought you together and the experiences He has allowed you to share with them. This will give you cause for joy, for thankfulness. And as joy and thankfulness fill your heart, it will lead you to, to, to prayer. And so pray to the Lord and give Him thanks 
Who are the people in your lives that you are thankful for? Who are the people that have shaped your spiritual growth, who have been there in your dark times to weep with you, but also in the joyful times to laugh with you? Praise God for them. Take time not just to thank God for the check that has come into the mail or or daily provisions of meal, but take time to thank God for the people that He has placed strategically in your life, perfectly orchestrating it so that joy would resound through even in times of isolation and loneliness. And not only that, take it a step further, if if I can make it really practical, as you spend time praying for these specific people, spend this week reaching out to them. Perhaps you can even write a, a handwritten letter and mail it to them. Write them an email, shoot them a text, send them a care package, give them a phone call. And and in your joy, remind each other of God's faithfulness in both of your lives. But let's go deeper. As as, as Paul uh, remembers, as as he is thankful of the past, what is his current prayer as he is hopeful for the future? And so in verse 9 through 11, Paul continues uh, in his opening letter with this, and he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer is that the congregation, that his brothers and sisters would abound and grow more and more and more in love. But here's the interesting thing. He he doesn't just simply stop there. He qualifies love. He explains what type of love he's referring to. Because, you know, we, we live in a culture where love isn't qualified. The world tells us that we simply just need more of it. And we need to just love more. It doesn't tell us where it comes from, how it grows, and why it ought to be important. It just says that all you need is love. It says that love is blind. It says through uh, different commercials and, 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 and messages that we just have to give more love, send more love, be more loving, act more kind. And it doesn't quite qualify the depth and the richness of what this love ought to be. You know, an an undescriptive, unqualified love is not simply all we need. We're not not called to just simply turn the blind eye to all the brokenness and the division in the world and simply just try to love beyond that. Nor should we imagine uh, that there is nothing really to think about except loving one another in a very simple and, and blissful way. Rather, Paul prays that love would abound more and more through the knowledge of God. You see, this this knowledge of God is not simply learning facts about Him. It's it's, it's, It's not simply knowing more facts or theology or doctrine or regurgitating things from the Bible about God. See, it's the difference between reading about someone on Wikipedia versus marrying them and having a relationship with them and spending time with them, meals with them, 
having tough conversations with them. It's not simply a relationship that informs you of who God is, but it's a, it's a transforming relationship that shapes you as well. You see, this knowledge of God isn't simply found by reading your Bibles in a regimented way. It's, it's found by reading your Bible with the person of God in mind as you sit at his feet. You know, um, Frank Sheed said this, and I want to read a quote for us here. It says this, quote, A virtuous man may be ignorant, uh, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would, it would be a strange God who would be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing a little about him, how should love uh, he should love God more from knowing more about him? For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving God. And so what Frank here is doing, he's linking the importance of both knowledge and love. See, we can't just love God without, not, without knowing Him at all. And, and at the same time, we're not going to just simply love God by simply knowing who He is. Rather, a, a, a deep knowledge and understanding of who God is as a, as a personal God, as a Father, gives us a, a deepening love and a sense of His heart for us. And so the more we know about God, the more we love God, you know, if all of our Bible reading and praying and, and church going is so that we would simply gain more facts about God, then, then we've missed a point. We, we, we've flattened down the pages of the Bible and, 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 and voided it with all any personal love and touch. And, and it would just be as good as Googling, who is God? What does he say? But but the heart of knowing God is is, is such so that we would have a deep an intimate, a, a, a close, fellowshipping relationship with Him in such a way that we would also resemble Him. And by resembling Him and knowing how He thinks and what He loves and what He hates, that knowledge of God would help us better discern in our decision-making so that we would indeed approve what is excellent. And so let, let me help us apply it in this way. Are you, are you struggling with decision-making and trying to figure out what is pleasing to the Lord? Perhaps it's small temptations or life's big struggles. Then my, my challenge to you is to pray like this. Or if someone uh, is sharing with you struggles in, in, in decision-making or temptations or not knowing how to grow, then pray for them in such a way. Pray so that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment of who God is. You see, before we see this, this part of Paul's writing as a prescription on how we can grow, we have to see it as a as a prayer that, that makes us want to grow. 
a lot of times when we read things like this, we think, okay, then all we have to do is know more about God. It'll help us to make more informed decisions and prove what is excellent. And so then in turn, it'll make us more loving. And we try to take it as a prescription or a formula to be a better Christian. But we have to remember that Paul isn't prescribing this to the church in Philippi. He's not saying, hey, do these things. He's saying almost with a pastoral heart, this is my prayer for you, that your love would abound more and more. My prayer is so that you would know God in deeper and deeper ways. My prayer is so that you would know Him so intimately that it would affect your decision-making from the small things to the greater things. My prayer is so that when you are in a situation, you would know what to do because you would know exactly what God is thinking and His desire for you. This is Paul's prayer and this is how we ought to pray before we even desire to act. And so Paul reflects on the past and he is thankful and he is filled with joy even though he's sitting in a jail cell. As he reflects on the path, being filled with joy, he writes this letter and he's hopeful of the future. And so he prays for his brothers and sisters to be filled with the Spirit and abound in love. So let me conclude with this. Paul does this because why? He is confident in Christ. He says, I am sure of this. I am sure of this. As I look and reflect on the past, I'm filled with joy. And I, as I look into the future, I'm filled with hope. There is joy in the present as I reflect on the past. And there is hope in the present as I look to the future because I am sure of this fact. In verse 6, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good work here seems to be referring to two aspects. There is a good work that God has done in you and is also doing through you. First, the good works of salvation that God started in each individual through Christ, that we are assured will be brought to completion. That means that you who are saved in Jesus Christ, the good work that God began in you through Jesus, the sanctifying work, He will bring it to completion. Even though you may be discouraged and you feel like you're backsliding, I am confident in this, be confident in this, that He who began a good work in you, through Christ Jesus, will by the very Spirit of Christ Jesus bring it to completion when He returns. So if you're struggling, if you're discouraged right now in your faith, be encouraged. Rejoice. Have, have a joyful attitude. Be confident in this. And say, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Secondly, the good work that seems to also point, that this good work that, is, that Paul is referring to uh, seems to also point to the forged fellowship that God has joined, as well as the kingdom work that these uh, two parties are endeavoring to do. And so, so there is a good work that God has done in us, but there is also good works that God is doing through us. So if, if you feel far right now from the congregation, if you feel far from the church, if you feel far from your community, if you miss the people and the ministries that you are a part of, then be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, but now also through you, will bring it to completion 
because it's his kingdom and it's his work. Don't worry if 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 mercy is going to continue to be dispensed. Don't worry if the word of God is going to continue to go forth. Don't worry if those who need a shepherd are going to be shepherded. These things will be done, Lord willing, as we are obedient and faithful, but ultimately because God who began a good work even in our church and our ministry and in our congregation and the good work He is doing through us, you and I, He will be the one to bring it to completion. And this should be our prayer and our joy and our, our, our rock and, and our confidence. So continue to be faithful. Be confident in this. As you reflect and look at the past, be thankful. Give God thanksgiving. And as you look at the future, be hopeful. Because he who began a good work in you and through you will bring it to completion. And brothers and sisters, as sure as, God, as sure as God's word says it, I am sure of this. So let's pray.